Welcome to the Modern Futures Podcast. Humanity is evolving at a pace never seen before. Join futurist Nicholas Badminton as he discusses how new ideas and developments impact us today, how they will make tomorrow more productive, and how they can make life a little more challenging. Welcome to the latest episode of the Modern Futures Podcast. Uh, my name is Nicholas Bamington. I'm a futurist based here in Vancouver. I travel the world speaking about uh, topics on the future of humanity and technology. And today I'm very, very thankful to have my great friend, Dr. Marina Adchade, who uh, teaches economics at the University of British Columbia and is also the author of a world-renowned book called Dollars and Sex. Hi, Marina. How are you? I'm great. Can you just give us a little bit of, uh, of your background, your history, and, and what brought you to your area of study that you, uh, you do today? Well, I'm an economist, uh, an academic, and I, like all other economists, I, I spent most of my career looking at things like markets. And then about eight years ago, I took a, a left turn and did something else that no other economist has ever done and started looking at the economics of sex and love. So that started with a classroom, and then it led to a blog, and then it led to my book, and it just kind of took off from there. And was there just a, was there a particular starting point to that? Was there an epiphany moment that suddenly brought you to that, or was this like uh, just just a curiosity that's been brewing for a number of years? I think it was a curiosity. I mean, it, for many years, I've been thinking about things like you know the fact that marriage is a monopoly, and economists know that monopolies are inefficient. So why are we so big on on marriage? And so I think that lots of things in my personal life, I always t- looked at from the perspective of economics. But I think the real epiphany came when when I thought about how we were teaching our students and how we were not encouraging our students to take economics and apply it to their lives. And so then I started teaching it into my classrooms. And of course, the students loved it. You know, that was really the beginning. Yeah, where there's a need and like education is about context for me. So when you actually deepen the context, you deepen the education and that understanding, and that's a great foundational platform for application in different areas, right? Yeah, I just call it sneaking the learning in. <laughs> just sneak it in. And this is what we're going to have to do going forward as, as fewer and fewer people like go to university or do somewhat like traditional degrees and whatever, right? Well, I think the thing is there's no point teaching people things that they just memorize and write on an exam. I think you need to, to teach people things they can actually integrate into their thinking, things that they can take away. And, and talk to their family and friends about and then I, I think that that's when education really changes people's lives yeah it's practicalities versus listing off names and dates right I, I suffered with this at, at university as well I struggled with the idea I did pretty well but like it, it just seems that today it's uh, it's more practical understanding of, of the current context of the world and where the future is taking us. Uh, I recently, uh, back in December in 2016, I attended a, a, a sort of a mini conference over at the University of British Columbia called the Metaphysics of Love. And I saw you actually give a, a, a keynote there. It's a very small group of academics that thought about love and sex. And there were people there from Stanford, people there from UBC and all over the country as well. And uh, you were a highlight of the day. And uh, you gave a talk there called How Technology Gives Us Marriages That Don't Completely Suck. 
And I'm pretty sure that people listening to the podcast are going to be kind of intrigued on what your thoughts are in that area. I'd love for you to take us through some of your thoughts on that and discuss some points. Right. So, uh, yeah, the, the Metaphysics of Love Conference was great. It was mostly philosophers. And so me being there, I was a real outlier because I'm an economist. And I think that when a, an economist comes along and says they're going to talk about love, people are pretty skeptical of what that means and, and what that's actually going to, to look like. But I think there's a lot to be said for, for the way that we make rational decisions around love and how uh, we respond to incentives. So, you know, economics in its foundation is just the way that the rational players make decisions when they're faced with scarcity. And when it comes to love, I think that there's, there's a great deal of scarcity. And I think that we respond to, to our, the environment in which we're in. And people may be skeptical about this, but we know that the way people structure their relationships and the way they feel love changes over time and changes from society to society. And so for me, I think this is really just an economic outcome. So from there, when you think about the economic environment, technology plays a huge role in the economic environment in which we live. And so it makes sense that technology is shaping the nature of our our personal relationships. When I say technology, a lot of people think that I mean online dating. It's, it's actually the most common thing that people think that I mean. But of course, I don't mean that at all. Technology to an economist doesn't really mean that kind of technology. It can mean anything from the way that we organize production, the way that we operate in, in our work lives, all the way to you know the way that babies are made. We are... I w- we're not moments away. We are actually we have the technology now for three people to be the parent of one child. That type of technology is is bound to change the way that we we arrange our households, right? And so that's the kind of technology I'm interested in. That and and, and other types of technology. So it seems to be the dynamics of of relationships, um, the wider world, uh, and maybe even the the more like normal practical elements of relationships and reproduction. Does this mean that technology has fundamentally changed what marriage means today? I think it has. So for me, I'm, I'm interested in, in social change. Like it, it's not, I'm not necessarily just interested in how individuals, you know, two people might go off and, and have a relationship structured any way they like. But what I'm really interested in is the way that society sees relationships. And I think that that's more important. Predicting technological change is easy to some degree because you, you identify a human need and then you kind of imagine what the technology might look like to fill that need. But imagining the social change that comes out of that technological change is much more difficult. You know, 100 years ago, no one would have predicted that we have same-sex marriage now, right? 100 years ago, no one would have predicted uh, that we have, you know, cohabitation where people are living together, but that society recognizes those people as marriage. You know, a a lot of these changes are coming through technology and they're social change. And I think that that's important because social change has a tendency to persist through time and permeate itself through society. So, I mean, obviously there's exponential technologies that have kicked in over the past few years and data has been generated. Just more and more data, more and more systems, more and more mechanisms to connect with people. But, but where does this leave us? I mean, we've got the dynamics of modern households and the changes and, and the tensions that happen in modern society. But like, where does all of this uh, technology intersect with everything? Well, I think modern households have changed very little, right? And, it, and it's, I find it fascinating because 
young adults, like the, the, the people that I teach, um, when they look forward to their lives and they imagine the, the type of relationships they have, if they want to get married, they imagine a very traditional marriage. My young female students think they will marry somebody who earns more than them. They will focus on taking care of children in the home and he will earn an income. And, and in 2017, this is, it's not only, it's not surprising, it's actually just not realistic. I think that we need to have these conversations because I think the, these, these changes are coming. And I think that the if we can anticipate the changes, we'll be better positioned to uh, adapt to them as a society. Uh, so off the back of that, can we talk a little bit, look, we've got the boomers, like, which are like my parents. Then you've got the, the Gen Xers, which are like me, break everything, rebuild everything, right? And then you've got the millennials, which I'm kind of, kind of like the lazy generation. Can you talk a little bit about the generational changes between, between those three groups, really? Because for, for me, it feels that millennials have kind of started to become more like boomers again. Yeah, no, I think that's really true, right? I think that it's funny because when boomers were in high school, they, they looked forward in their lives and they thought they would get married and have traditional marriages. And then our generation, right, because I'm, I'm also Generation sure. X, is we we were, we were didn't think that way. At no point in time when I was in high school did I think that I would have that type of traditional relationship. I thought I would go out and I would do my own thing and maybe I would marry, maybe I wouldn't, wouldn't screw it, right? But millennials are not like that. They are they are more like boomers. And, and, and I think that millennials actually are... are they're nervous. They're a nervous generation. That's my appraisal of the millennials in general. And it's one of the reasons why this kind of motivated me to talk about this topic, to talk about how technology is going to be shaping marriages, because I think millennials are a little bit lost about what's coming down the pipe in terms of relationship structure, household structure. Um, they're not as brave as we are, right? We were, we're, we were pioneers. We were happy to go out and forge our own paths. Whereas millennials, I think that they would like a little bit more security about knowing where they're going. Yeah, I, I think maybe the, the proliferation of technology has dumbed them down a little bit and they're not fighting hard enough for, for what they want. They're a point-and-click generation, Yeah. right? They are point-and-click generation. I think that the, the younger millennials, this is less true for. I think the, the, the younger millennials are, are more like, are more, uh, they have a, a different attitude towards technology, but the slightly older millennials, they like to, you know, technology that requires, you know, the amount of skill that you, requires to fill out your Facebook, um, your pay Facebook account, right? But maybe that's a little bit unfair, but I think that in terms of personal relationships, I really don't think that they're thinking outside the box that much. Or if they are, they're just, they just don't know what it looks like. Right, but there's still the radicals in society. Sure. Even more so, I mean, we live in Vancouver and there's lots of radical people that surround us in, in multiple configurations, multiple genders, you, in, in lots of people that you know see marriage as possession and, and all of this kind of thing, right? Yeah, one hundred percent. And 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 there's a lot of people who are searching for these to answers to these questions. You know, I, I find it fascinating though, is because people are looking for new institutions when it comes to marriage. Like for example, a lot of people in the polyamory community are looking for institutionalization of polyamory. They want societal recognition of those types of relationships. I don't think I'm wrong about that, right? And I find it interesting that those, those same people aren't just looking for deinstitutionalization because that, that's what I would like to see is deinstitutionalization of marriage, a kind of a build-your-own-marriage model where people actually as individuals get to structure their own relationships as opposed to seeking societal recognition, being, having that type of acknowledgement. I, I'm, it's not clear to me why that's even necessary. And I think that technological change is going to push us towards the deinstitutionalization of marriage. 
So build your own marriage, like building blocks. Yeah. Like I want this and this and this, and I select that part and that part. And I mean, what does that look like? I guess it can have multiple configurations to the nth degree, right? Absolutely. But I think it's a lot of hard work. And I think it's something that people need to do as individuals. Yeah. I don't think that this is a matter of couples coming together and deciding the type of relationship they want to have. I, I think that what it requires is individuals to spend some time thinking about what it is that they want their relationships to look like and then go out and find somebody who conforms to, you know, that type of model. Yeah. Or multiple people. Or multiple people. Or, or sex bots. Or sex bots. And people. <laughs> well, sex bots, yes, indeed. With a cyborg um, dog. Yeah. I mean, this is it. This is the future, right? Talking about that, I mean, you mentioned polyamory, but like you and I... And, as an aside from this conversation, we've spoken about relationship anarchy as well. Right. So if, if you think about build your own marriage, build your own relationships, deinstitutionalization, breaking the hierarchy, developing your own rules with multiple people and not giving priority. Is that where there's this, this melding of an idea around relationship anarchy and the idea of build your own marriage? Well, I'm not even entirely... I think that relationship anarchy in its current form is not that. Because, you know... I think that two people can come together and uh, allow the other person to some level of control over their lives. I think that that's, that's fair for people to, to want that. But I don't think relationship in anarchy in its current form actually approves of those types of relationships. It's more like relationship anarchy, anarchy, uh, than it is just relationship anarchy. But you can't be anarchistic about anarchy because ultimately... What, you remove rules from something that you don't have rules there for, it, it puts rules back into a ruleless system? Yes, I think that you should be allowed to actually determine that the rules do exist. Okay. Thinking about this, but like lots of data comes, comes behind all of this thinking to bring you to this point around saying that, okay, the, the current models are broken, technology's driven us forward, um, we can build our own marriage. But what does the data, data say to, to, to drive some of these conclusions that you're made, making? Well, I think that with the, the problem with predicting social change is that, from a future perspective, is that there's no real data that's going to help us with this, right? We, here we have to rely on theory uh, in order to make the predictions because just pure data is not going to work, especially since, as an economist, we don't really rely on, on uh, people's statements of how they think they're going to behave. We depend on how people actually behave. And so until we actually observe this type of behavior, there, there's no real data. I mean, let me give you an example. There's massive social change that came about when birth control technology started to evolve after the Second World War. And I think that many people kind of predicted some of that social change. People predicted that people would have fewer children. People predicted that people would become more promiscuous. Those were easily predictable outcomes. There's The data starts to appear pretty quickly. People become promiscuous very, very quickly. Within five years of the, uh, the birth control bill becoming available, you know, teenagers were way more promiscuous than they had been in previous generations. That kind of thing is easy to predict. What they didn't predict were other changes, right? The, the, the massive uptake of education of women, it, wholesale abandonment of marriage from certain sections of society, those type of so, that so, type of social change is much more difficult to predict. Um, and so then you have to rely on theory and, and what we know about how societies evolve. So today, do in Canada, do we exist in, in a fairly normal society and, and normal in quotes, meaning, you know, 
a society that say um, you know the Gen X's and the Boomers have perpetuated in terms of you know leave school at a certain age, meet someone, get married, and have kids. Are, are we are we still in that model? But right now we're we're breaking it, and these new ideas are coming in. I sure hope so. Right. I, I, I hope that we're breaking it and I hope these new ideas are coming in. But I think we need a wider discussion about that and not just a discussion that happens within individual groups, because obviously there's a lot of individual groups like the relationship anarchists, the polyamory organizations. They have these conversations, but I don't see that there's a, a much wider conversation about this. I don't see that people are actually sitting down and, and speaking to their children about it, for example. And it's only when that happens. And then, of course, governments have to evolve as well. There's been a movement in Canada for maybe the last five years uh, to move towards a short-term marriage contract, where after three or four years, your marriage license needs to be renewed uh, that's gained no traction um, I find it I find that whole I don't I'm not a big fan of the whole short-term marriage contract because I particularly personally I don't understand why I need a license from the government anyway to have a marriage right. so I would just prefer the, the abandonment of marriage licenses by governments but you know the fact that they they're not getting anywhere and, and actually technology suggests that short-term marriage contracts make more sense and in the future of technology is going to make short-term marriage contracts more appealing to more people. So I think we're still a ways out. It kind of uh, reminds people that love doesn't last forever. Well, no. I think that, that, I think that people can make long-term commitments, right? Sure. And people can stay together for long periods of time. But, you know, the biological impulse that is love, it, it, it perhaps doesn't last. It doesn't, certainly doesn't last until death do you part. It doesn't mean that people can't structure households that last forever. And I think even the short-term marriage contract, people recognize that. I think it goes back to what I said at the beginning about the idea that marriage is a monopoly. Monopolies are inefficient. We have lots of government organizations whose, whose sole job is to break down monopolies and, and oligopolies and so that they don't get market power. But marriage is the ultimate in market power, right? And, and society condones that type of type of monopoly, even though it is inefficient in many ways. So, you know, it's, it's like sitting in a room and all your friends are partnered off or they're, they're all married and suddenly you're the only person there and everyone starts turning their, their, their attention to you and saying, oh, you know, why are you like this, you know? And it's like, well, you know, I've been, I've been married and I'm now divorced and now I'm single, but like, you know, I'd love to meet someone, but it's not that easy anymore because <laughs> you, you learn things and whatever, right? It, I mean, in terms of monopolies though, is it really like that in Canada? Are we not a progressive country from, from a marriage perspective, or are we quite sort of conservative? Marriage is a monopoly in many ways. I mean, think about it this way. When was the last time you asked a married friend out for dinner and they said, didn't have to ask their partner if they could do that? Yeah, right. no, no, they always have to. Not, I, have many, I have many friends who don't, and yeah. I really, really respect that. But, but, but what's interesting is all the men have to go in and ask for a pass, especially if they've got children, they have to ask for a pass, this, this non-existent like, little slip of paper that gives them like, the night off. I have friends who have dogs that have to ask for a pass. <laughs> uh, and and, and like, but, like, when I chat to my female friends, it's no problem at all. Or they want to bring their husband. Yeah, but it actually, I have, I have several friends who are not like this, and I have several friends, like I, I have male friends that I'll ask them out, and they'll write me back and say, do you mind if I bring my wife? Um, that I, I consider progress, Yeah. right? Uh, so I, I think we are seeing progress, but for example, um, society still struggles with the idea of people having sexual relationships outside of marriage. 
as there's, there's conversations about it, but I think that people still have a hard time understanding that. So do you, do you mean extramarital relationships? Yes. Okay. Is that something that's going to be acceptable in society? Yes. Okay, but like, uh, why? I mean, because this is like, people are involved, emotions are involved, people get hurt, but extramarital relationships, uh, you know, but we're not even talking about polyamory at this stage, right? No. We're talking about permission. Yes. So I think, I mean, this is, well, this is my, this is where I think technology is going to take us. In the past, marriages were about two people coming together for productive purposes, forming a household, having children, uh, bringing in income, right? And, And that's back in the days when we had this division of labor so that men were working and women were at home. When we started getting new technologies, particularly household technologies that made women's work at home easier, birth control technologies that made it possible for people to control the number of children that they had, that that idea of marriage as a productive unit started to break down and people started having relationships that were more about sex and companionship. And it starts longer ago than people think. I mean, this is we're talking 100 years ago. 100 years ago, if you were looking at the public discourse on marriage, there was pearl clutching and hand-wringing over the idea that marriages were more about sex than they had been ever before in the past. And that's because if you give people contraceptives and they still have sex, then it's kind of hard to conceal the fact that, that women in particular want to have sex with their husbands. To me, the technology we have now is kind of taking us in the opposite direction. It's taking us back to the productive marriage. It's, it, it has the power to break down this, this um, the tie between... Um, sex and marriage, right? And and so it opens people up to the ideas that you can have a productive unit unit that functions, um, but continue to have sexual relationships outside that unit. And maybe those sexual relationships aren't with people, right? Maybe sexual relationships are with sex bots or other forms of technology um, that are less stigmatized and are less likely to lead to jealousy and the type of problems that you have within relationships when people having sex with other people and and not technology would you put sex workers into that you know into that category as well because it's like sex work these days and the ability to meet someone and have sex on an on-demand basis using technology like a lot of you know it's like there are no more pimps the the idea that there are these escort websites and whatever is is the idea a different classification so First of all, there are still lots of pimps. <laughs> I, I've spoken to several of them. Okay. The uh, Well, you know, sex work is heavily stigmatized. And actually, as, as somebody who had a relationship with somebody who was using sex workers, I can tell you this is not something that, it's, it's just not the same thing, right. right? I mean, on top of the stigmatization, you know, there's a lot of exploitation that goes on along in sex work. So it's not just a matter if your partner is having sex with another person. You have to confront the, the possibility that that other person is being exploited in the process. Uh, so there's a lot of discomfort around the, that. It's very difficult to talk about sex work, sure. right? It's... Um, uh, it, it's still, it's it's easy. People don't want to talk about sex bots either, but it's a lot easier to talk about sex bots than it is to talk about sex workers. And that's because the human element has been removed from the situation. Yeah, because the human element's being removed. The idea that there's exploitation has yeah. been removed. Um, the, the, the risk of violence is being removed. So, you know, in, in the future, it's possible that sex bots will replace sex workers. Yeah, right? there, there, I think there's a study from New Zealand that says that 
by like 2030, you know, the, ma the majority of sex workers will actually be sex bots, right? Yeah, if you say this publicly, you will get angry email responses from people in the sex work community. Uh, but I, I think that given that it, there's so much, it reduces the risk so much um, to both parties, I think that this is definitely the way it's going to go. Okay, moving on from that. It's a thorny subject, right? But mm -hmm. it's super interesting when we talk about sex bots. We had uh, Katie Metaverse, Miss Metaverse on talking about that. You've listened to that interview. Lots of, lots of con uh, conversations happening. CES is happening this week. Sex bots are coming. Let's, let's underline that. I want to get back to the idea of the do-it-yourself marriage, right? The build-it-yourself marriage. What's the architecture of that? What does that look like? If you were going to go to government in Canada or North America or, or, or the States or wherever and say, okay, like this is, this is my critique of the current way that marriages are licensed and this is the, the expectations or whatever. If you could go in and say, here's my blueprint for what modern marriage should be and some guidance for Canadians, what would that look like? Well, I mean, my blueprint would be no blueprint. Right. I mean, personally, I think that it has to be an individual choice. Um, you can think about, for example, cohabitation, where co cohabitation came from. I, I actually I say this, but I think cohabitation is just as stigmatized now as it was 30 years ago. We don't seem to be making a whole lot of progress. I mean, I was living with my partner uh, 30 years ago. Um, nobody seemed to have any problem with that, but we still seem to be having these conversations. The point being is that social change is incredibly slow. Right. Um, but it's also organic. I don't think that you can go to the government and say, here is my blueprint or you can go to Canadians and say, here is the plan. I think that the social change needs to just kind of um, come out of the system in which we we are the economic system in which we all live. But ideally, what I would like to see is government stepping out of a marriage. And I'd like to see individuals who are free to form their own relationships, free of, of stigmatization, uh, free of, of social structures that have shaped our behavior and, and made many, many people's lives very difficult over the years. The, back in the 1970s, we had at-fault divorce in Canada and the U.S. And, mo and most of the world, which made divorce really difficult. Uh, and then they ended at-fault divorce. They made it easier for people to get divorced. Uh, I don't think that Canadians realize just how important that was. Uh, there's this great study at the U.S. Uh, the U.S. that said that there was a significant fall in suicide rates that happened when at-fault divorce w went away, right? You know, I just want to see people being happier. And I think that you, you can't possibly be uh, any less happy when you're making your own decisions. Yeah. You know, there's this, there's this principle uh, called Lachetelia's Principle, Lachetelia's principle says that whenever you remove a constraint, you can be made no worse off. The example I always give is this, if, is if I asked you what is the highest mountain in Canada, I don't actually know what the highest mountain is Canada, so it doesn't make you such a great example, uh, but if you, if you lift that constraint and you say maybe what is the highest mountain in North America or what is the highest mountain in the world, every time you remove the constraint, you end up with a higher mountain, right? And I think that, that, that things that restrict the way that people shape their relationships does exactly the same thing. And that removing those restrictions, it cannot possibly make people worse off. And it has the potential to make a lot of people better off because they're, they're getting to make their own choices. Yeah, it, it, it's really interesting because do-it-yourself 
you kind of even been uh, programmed to think that there's still a toolkit, right? Yeah. And you're saying there's no toolkit. You just like like remove the constraints and maybe educate people to say it's okay to just be how you want and how you feel. But that makes it more difficult in the world. Yeah, it's hard work. It, it, it is hard work, right? I think, I mean, personally for me, it's hard work, right? And this is why we need to have more of these conversations. And this is why I'm writing a new book on this topic, right? This is my plan is, to, is, to, is for my new book, which I've told you about, is to talk about the ways that we can kind of unstructure our relationships. Okay, Marina, we've covered a lot of ground which is fantastic. Lots of thoughts are going to come out here. I'd like to invite you back again in six months or so after you've started writing your book and you found out a bit more information to, to maybe delve into some more thinking about this. Uh, I'd like to thank you for, for coming here for this conversation. And I'm sure going to be interested to, to read a lot of the comments and emails that we're going to get. Where can people uh, find out a little bit more from you? Well, I'm on, I'm on Twitter at, at dollars and sex which is a handle that I have a love-hate relationship with because many people think I'm a sex worker. And then I have a, a website, which is just marinaadshade.com. Dr. Marina Adshade, thank you very much for coming, and I'll speak to you very soon. Thank you. Thank you.